I'm going to continue talking along the line of the healing belongs to us. We've been uh, teaching on this for a couple of weeks. And I'm going back to the original text scriptures that we have uh, founded this series on. Matthew chapter 8 and Isaiah chapter 53. Matthew chapter 8 beginning in verse 16. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Isaiah chapter 53. In verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and we hid as it were our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten with God, sin of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. He, the chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Now in Matthew chapter 8, verse 16, uh, verse 17, it says, he quotes uh, Isaiah. Matthew, by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, tells us that he's quoting Isaiah. And chapter 53 is where he's quoting from. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Now, these words, griefs and sorrows, are translated in different ways throughout the Old Testament. And I'd like to point out some of the ways that they're used. The word sorrows is the word makob, M-A-K-O-B. I don't know if I'm saying it right, but it's the way it looks like it should be said anyway. And this word is used 15 times in the Old Testament. Now, the, the word itself literally means, according to Strong's Concordance, literally means anguish. It means pains as a result of affliction. Now, there are uh, times in the Old Testament, several times in those 15 um, times that it's used, where it's translated pains. But it really goes further than that. It goes to the, uh, the feeling associated with affliction. I'm going to read to you from another place that is used in the Old Testament. Exodus chapter 3, verse 7. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people which are in Egypt and have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. But for I know their sorrows. This word sorrows is the same word makob that's used in Isaiah chapter 53. It goes to the anguish when you're under affliction or enduring affliction. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says we have a high priest that can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. It's talking about the heartache. There's another place in the Old Testament referring to God uh, hearing Israel's sighs. S-I-G-H-S. Their size. It's not even a, a, a comment. It's just a, an expression of the feeling, the anguish, as a result of afflictions. Now, the afflictions are not limited to just heat, physical healing or sickness and disease. There are other things you could experience anguish over, other uh, types of affliction, which would cause the same result. But here where it says that Jesus was a man of sorrows, it literally is telling us, that he can be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. Now, the other word is grief. It's the word coli. I don't know if I'm saying that right either, but from the spelling, it looks like that's how it should be. This word is used 24 times in the Old Testament. And there are only four times that it's translated grief. Every other place is translated sickness. There are two times in Jeremiah's uh, prophecy to the church, the book of Jeremiah uses it twice. And there are twice, two times in uh, uh, Isaiah that it's used as grief, translated grief, and that's Isaiah 53, 4 and 5. But every other time it's translated sickness. Now, I'd like to read to you a couple of times where it's uh, used in the Old Testament and translated sickness. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 15, as a part of, well, let me start in verse 12. It's talking about the Old Testament covenant that God has made with his people. Wherefore it shall come to pass, 
if you hearken to these judgments and keep and do them, that the Lord thy God shall keep thee in thy covenant, keep unto thee the covenant and the mercy which he swear unto thy fathers. And he will love thee and bless thee and multiply thee. He will also bless the fruit of thy womb and the fruit of thy land, the corn and thy the, and the wine and thine oil and the increase of thy kind and the flocks of thy sheep in the land which he swear unto thy fathers to give them. Thou shalt be blessed above all people. There shall not be male or female barren among you or among your cattle. Verse 15, and the Lord will take away from thee all sickness. This is that word, make, uh, word koli. The Lord will take away from thee all sickness and will put none of the evil diseases of Egypt which thou knewest upon thee, but will lay them upon all them that hate thee. Now, folks, the word griefs wouldn't work there. The Lord will take away from thee all griefs. Specifically, it's talking about sickness and disease. And so there's not another word that he could have used that the Old Testament writers, in this case Moses, would have used to identify the point that he's trying to make. Another time is in Isaiah chapter 38, the writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, when he had been sick and was recovered of this sickness. This word sickness is the word coli. It's talking about physical uh, affliction. It's talking about physical disease. Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 59. Then the Lord, he's talking about the curse of the law. Then the Lord will make thy plagues wonderful and the plagues of thy seed, even great plagues and of long continuance and sore sicknesses. This is that word, coli, and of long continuance. Moreover, he will bring upon thee all the diseases of Egypt, which thou wast afraid of, and they shall cleave unto thee. Also, every sickness and every plague which is not written in the book of this law will the Lord bring upon them until thou be destroyed. So in verse 59, it's translated sicknesses. In verse 61, it's translated sickness. Isaiah 53 is specifically talking about what Jesus or what the Messiah would do on our behalf. And it identifies as clearly as you can identify that physical healing is a part of the redemptive work of Jesus. It's a part of the redemptive work of Jesus. Surely, he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains or our anguish. Surely, he has borne our sickness. Verse 5 of Isaiah 53 but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. And all we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Now where it says in, chapter, in verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Those two words, borne and carried, are Levitical terms. It means to carry away. It means to separate you. The Bible says in Psalm 103 that God has separated us from, his, from our sins as far as the east is to the west. That's an infinite distance. There are no east and west poles like there are north and south poles. And so as far as the east is from the west, it's talking about an infinitive, uh, an infinitive, it's talking about an infinite Distance. Takes me a while, but I'll get there. He has separated us from our sins as far as the east is from the west. Folks, the redemptive work of Jesus was designed by God to be an eternal work. It was designed by God to be such a work that we are not to even remember our past sins and transgressions. God said, I will remember thy sins no more for my sake, for his own sake. We think everything that God did was for us, but it was for him too. That's the condition that he's created for his family. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, 
He is a new creature. One translation says a new species of being. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. And all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. And notice that word reconcile and reconciliation. Those two words mean exchange. It means there was a divine exchange that was made. Where it says Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. How could God legally offer man redemption from sickness and disease and redemption from sin and spiritual death? Somebody had to take the place and pay the price for those who were made unrighteous by the sin of Adam. God could have created the system any way that he wanted to. He could have created a system whereby Adam's sin was just his own and not representative of all of mankind. But he didn't. He created a system whereby Adam, as the federal head of all mankind, the first of mankind in existence, that the work that he did, the unrighteous act of obeying the devil instead of obeying God's word, stood for us all. Now, why did God do it the way he did? Folks, the reason God set things up the way that he did was because he wanted us to know the great sacrifice he was willing to make in offering his son to die on our behalf. This exchange, which Israel was well-schooled in, is brought into the New Testament and it's called the Ministry of Reconciliation. The Ministry of Reconciliation. The sacrifice of Jesus, the price that he paid on the cross, was unlike anything that was known to man. For example, we know that there was a lot of idol worship throughout the Old Testament and still continued to a great degree in the New Testament. For example, in Ephesus, there were rows and rows of porticos that people could find statues or idols to false gods and offer sacrifices to them. But those sacrifices were generally different than the sacrifice that the Jews understood. The Jews understood that blood sacrifice was the only thing that would cover their sin. Now, idol worship wasn't about freedom from sin. Nobody made an offer to an idol, Old Testament or New Testament times, to gain some holiness. It was rather to appease the gods so things would go well for them in the earth. They offered sacrifices to the sun god, hoping that the sun would shine on their crops. They offered sacrifice to the water gods, hoping for water to nourish their crops. And so it was all about trying to appease some false god. But offering sacrifices to God the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was totally different. And blood was demanded of these sacrifices. Now, in the Old Testament, the only thing that we can find where blood sacrifices were offered to idols is, there, is the uh, reality that sometimes children were offered to the God called Molech. And they called that passing through the fire. Now, the Old Testament refers to it in a couple, of, uh, a couple of different places. Not much information about it at all. But this passing through the fire 
was made to Molech, this false god, this idol of Molech, again to appease him, not to gain righteousness, not to gain any position of holiness, but simply to appease this god, this idol called Molech. And God strongly warns, actually this was uh, operating most, mostly in the time of Jeremiah, but he cautions the people about offering their sons or their children to pass through the fire to Molech. Now there was a specific ritual and method to the way that these things were made and it offered the idea that if the child died in the fire then the God was appeased. But if the child failed to, to die in the fire as it was passed through the fire, then the God rejected, Molech rejected this sacrifice. Well, you should well understand that nobody made it through the fire. And so it was assumed that the God, was, God Molech was appeased with the sacrifice of the people. But everything else, as far as Israel's sacrifice and the ritual sacrifices that were demanded of Israel, were all because God wanted the people of Israel to understand that blood was required. Where, the, where there is no shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the Day of Atonement, for example, was the bloodiest day of the year. Because everybody is making their own sacrifices, offering their own sacrifices. But then it becomes a national day of sacrifice where the high priest gets involved and lays the sin upon the head of the scapegoat, all the sins of Israel, the representation of the sins of Israel being laid upon the scapegoat. And the scapegoat is taken out into the wilderness and left out in the wilderness for judgment to fall upon it. And then the sacrificial lamb on the Day of Atonement was taken into the Holy of Holies, offered as a sacrifice, and the blood of the lamb was taken to be placed on the altar. And that sacrifice, the blood that came from the sacrifice of the atonement lamb, of the sacrificial lamb was to remind Israel that only blood can remit sins. Only, only blood can satisfy the claims of justice against the sins of the people. So the Day of Atonement, if we had experienced it during the Old Testament, during the Old Testament times, the thing that everybody came away with is how bloody the thing was, how bloody the whole system was. Israel understood through the teaching of these ritual sacrifices that only the blood of the Messiah could do anything about wiping away their sins or washing away their sins on a permanent basis. Everything else was just one year at a time. From one day of atonement to the next year's day of atonement to the next year's day of atonement. And Israel came away with it, and you could well understand, they came away with the understanding that sins required blood. The remission of sins required blood and a blood sacrifice. Well, the Bible doesn't instruct us to offer sacrifices other than the sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice that we make is accepting what Jesus did on our behalf. And that's what Paul's bringing over into the New Testament, telling us how these things work. Let me start again in verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. 
Old things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. And all, the things are, and all things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. As I said, this word reconciled and reconciliation means a mutual exchange. It means one thing was offered for another. To wit, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Folks, the gospel is the word of reconciliation. The gospel is that Jesus died for your sins. The gospel is that the price has been paid. That's the good news of Jesus. Jesus paid the price for us once and for all. He paid the price for all sin. In Isaiah 53, 5, where it says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The difference between transgressions and iniquities doesn't lie in the difference of the word, the meaning of the words. It means Jesus paid for the original sin of Adam in the Garden of Eden, and then he paid for your individual sins that we have committed in the earth. He paid the price for both. He became the scapegoat for us both, both for original sin and for personal sin. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, the scripture goes on to say. He paid the price for poverty. And with his stripes we are healed. And that's talking about physical sickness. The griefs and sorrows or sicknesses and anguish or pain. There's no possibility for redemption apart from the blood that was offered as a sacrifice, as a substitute for you and me. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing the trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though Christ did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. This word reconciled is again talking about a mutual exchange. And here's where the exchange was made in verse 21. For he has made him, God has made Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, folks, notice Jesus was made to be sin. I think the church has sanitized the work of Jesus to a great degree and has left out the blood or the importance of the blood. Here where it says Jesus was made to be sin, God made Jesus to be sin. It's talking about a change of nature. So much of the church world seems to have the idea that God just laid over on Jesus like you'd put a cloak over somebody's back. And that's how he laid the sins of Israel or the sins of mankind on Jesus. But if that's true, then that means the righteousness that you and I have is nothing more than a cloak that's been placed upon our backs. But that's not what the words mean. The word really means he was made to be sin. His nature changed from righteousness to sin. And that doesn't mean when Jesus hung on the cross he had committed any sin of his own. If that had been the case, then he wouldn't have qualified for a holy and a spotless lamb. So here where it says that Jesus was made to be sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. It's telling us that the change of nature occurred both ways. Jesus became sin. His nature became sin. And every evil thing that we know of in, in the earth for the purpose of bearing it away dealing with the sin once and for all so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him folks you don't have a sin problem you will never have a sin problem now the, the world has one but you don't have a sin problem I don't care how many times you stumble and fall. 
I don't care how many times you transgress what the word of God says we should do. You don't have a sin problem. The reason we can say that is because Jesus dealt with the sin problem once and for all. Now the church world understands that Jesus was made to be sin. And salvation is available to everyone because nobody preaches against that. But when it comes to sickness and disease, that 53rd chapter of Isaiah, down around verse 11, 10 or 11, says God made him sickness. God literally made Jesus sickness. And it says it bruised God, it pleased God to bruise him. God's plan of redemption is so complete and is so much an established reality that God was pleased to send Jesus to the earth to obtain an eternal redemption for you and me. He was pleased in that. In other words, God wanted to go this way rather than Adam staying in the Garden of Eden forever and not sinning. God didn't cause Adam's sin, but he was prepared for it. He knew what would happen before Adam was ever created and formed in the earth. The Bible says Jesus was slain from the foundations of the earth, and that was before Adam and Eve ever came on the scene. God wanted the new birth for his people more than he wanted Adam to live a holy and sinless life and pass down that holiness and sinful uh, and holiness and redemptive nature to be passed on to mankind. The Bible says that Jesus is the firstborn from the dead. We can't be talking about physical death because Jesus wasn't the firstborn or the first person to be raised from the dead. We know there are times in the Old Testament where people were raised from death. We know that Jesus in his earthly ministry raised a couple of people from the dead too. So he couldn't be the firstborn from physical death. And that only leaves spiritual death to be born of. Jesus was made to be sin. He suffered the shame and the punishment that was necessary in order for righteousness to obtain, be obtained. So if Jesus was made to be sin, then that means he was made spiritually dead. Now spiritual death means separation from God. And there were times where Jesus, during his time on the cross, where you can see that Jesus is progressing to the point where he's made spiritually dead, where spiritual death overtakes him, where he calls out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Jesus knew what the plan of God was. He knew the price that he would pay on the cross for you and me. He knew all these things were going to transpire. I believe that's the reason why in the Garden of Gethsemane, the night that he was betrayed, he sweat great drops of blood. He knows something is coming. He knows that the price and the penalty, the, the price must be paid for the penalty of sin. So he's anguishing in the Garden of Gethsemane when he's praying, and great drops of blood come and drip from his face. And it says the angel came and strengthened him. Now, folks, if Jesus is operating in some kind of inherent power that he had with God the Father before the worlds were created, then he wouldn't need any supernatural strength that an angel could bring to him. He would have been greater than the angels. And it would have been impossible for the angels to give him strength 
that he would have already had if he was operating as the son of God on the earth. But because he has set aside that heavenly power and glory, according to Philippians 2, he set aside his equality with God to come to the earth as a man. Now, when he came to the earth as a man, the Bible says that Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River by John the Baptist. And the Holy Ghost descended on him in bodily shape like a bird would fly down from the sky. And it landed on Jesus and stayed there. Now, folks, I'm not sure what people saw. I'm not sure of anything other than something came down from heaven and landed upon him. Now, that would be a situation where it might be something like a cloak was placed over on his back. Whatever people saw, it was identified as coming from heaven, landing on and remaining on Jesus. And that was where his miracle working ministry began. Now, if Jesus, if that's not the way that it had happened, if Jesus was operating on the earth as the Son of God with inherent power that he had with God before he came to the earth, then who could anoint him? Who could anoint God? How could the baptism of John the Baptist have any direct bearing on the ministry of Jesus here on the earth? Jesus would have been greater than any angel or what any angel could bring or any strength imparted by an angel. But he laid aside his heavenly power and glory. We know that from John chapter 17 when he prays for the church. A part of his prayer is this. He said, Father, glorify me with, this, with the glory that I had with thee before the earth. So he's saying, he's identifying for us that he had a glory that was due to his place, his position as being on the right hand of God the Father before he came to the earth. And that was the heavenly power and glory that he laid aside to operate on the earth as a man. But that's not evident on the cross. All of these things departed from him one by one until Jesus finally gets to the place where he identifies that spiritual death has overtaken him when he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So God made him to be sin for us on the cross. Spiritual death overtook him. And then he spent three days and nights in the heart of the earth, in the lowest part of hell. Now, the Bible identifies that there are two places that those that were damned entered into. One place was Abraham's bosom, and the other place was the lower part of hell, called Sheol. Now some people have a hard time with the idea that Jesus was made spiritually dead because they have the idea that if Jesus was made to be spiritually dead then he stopped being the son of God. But that wasn't the case. You remember that Jesus told the story about the rich man and Lazarus? It's in Matthew chapter 16 I think. It tells that both went to hell. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom. And the rich man was in the part of hell, the lowest part of hell. Now, folks, the Bible says that God would have everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. So the question has to be asked. Where would you have gone without Jesus? And the answer to that is the lowest part of hell.
Well, if that's where you would have gone, then in order to make a substitutional sacrifice for you, then that's where Jesus had to go. Again, I think the church world sanitizes the story as much as they can and has the idea that Jesus just goes to Abraham's bosom instead of experiencing the torment of the lowest part of hell. He just went to Abraham's bosom, and after three days, he was raised up from the dead. Well, if that's true, then the only redemption he gained then was for those people in Abraham's bosom. The only ones that he offered a sacrifice or a substitutionary work for would have been those in Abraham's bosom. And that can't be right. That would mean that we can't be saved. But since God wills for all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, he had to provide a means, a redemptive means, for our sins to be paid for and wiped away. One of the stories in the Old Testament that shows this and bears this out is in Numbers chapter 16. Let me set up the story for you. The first part of the chapter tells us about the sons of Korah. Now the sons of Korah were a part of the Levitical tribe, which means that they were part of the, the group that performed the services and rituals of the sanctuary. They're operating in the wilderness, so all they had was the, the tabernacle in the wilderness but they're the lowercase priests that are performing the sacrifices of God as a part of their service to him. Well, they stand up and offer to Moses that Moses has overstepped his bounds. They say something like, why do you think that you're the only one that can speak to God or speak on behalf of God to the people. Moses realizes the severity of this, and it angers him, and he calls them on it and says, do you think it's a light thing to, to hold the position that you have? You're operating in service to God through the priesthood, but now you've set yourself against the one that God has chosen. So he calls them to a certain place the next morning after having given them instruction to bring a censer. And apparently that's a little smoke maker thing that you offer incense for or upon. And so they all have their censers with them. There's 250 of them that have ri risen up in rebellion against Moses. And Moses says something to the effect that God is going to show who he picked and who he uses. And so he says this. He says, if these men die a natural death, then you would have no way to know who God has chosen. But if the earth was to open up and swallow them whole, then you would know that God has chosen me and Aaron as his servants and as his mouthpiece. Well, that's what happened. The ground opened up, swallowed all of their families, all of their stuff. Fire fell upon the 250 princes of Egypt, that it, or a prince of Israel that had risen up against Moses. And as you might well imagine, Everybody goes absolutely crazy. Everybody goes running away from where the ground opened and closed back up on those people. And the next morning, the children of Israel come to Moses and say, Moses, you did a wrong thing by putting these people to death. And Moses instantly reacts because he knows what this is going to bring. So I'll start reading in verse 44. And the Lord spoke against Moses, spoke unto Moses, 
saying, Get you up from among the congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell upon their faces. God is saying, Let me wipe these people out. And get you up from among the congregation, that I may consume them as in a moment. And they fell on their faces. And Moses said unto Aaron, Take a censer, and put fire therein from off the altar, and put on incense, and go quickly unto the congregation, and make an atonement for them. Now this word atonement means a covering for sin. For there, for there is wrath gone out from the Lord, and the plague is begun. Now folks, when the Bible talks about plagues, that God, in certain places God brought plagues upon the people. It's not talking about sickness and disease. Why would God use sickness and disease when in the situations that we have record of in the Old Testament, every time he did bring a plague against them, people begin to die immediately. Sickness and disease is long-term death. The times where God brought brought plagues under the children of Israel was to wipe them out immediately, instantly. And Moses knows that without an atonement, the whole of the nation of Israel will die. Now they're deserving of death. So God's not operating in an unjust unjust manner. They deserve death from what they did. They're rebelling against God by rebelling against his chosen people. Moses and Aaron specifically is what I'm talking about. But he understands, Moses understands. He understands that an atonement had to be made for there is wrath gone out from the Lord and the plague has begun. And And Aaron took as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And behold, the plague had begun among the people. And he put on an incense and made an atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stayed. Folks, the plague that God used on occasion against the children of Israel, when they murmured against him and rebelled against him, can best be summarized as the angel of death. You remember on the Passover, the angel came down, and looked for whichever houses had the blood upon the doorpost and the lintels. And the places, the houses, the dwelling places that had the blood on the door were spared. But the firstborn of every house that did not display the blood was killed. This angel of death is God's. We know that the devil comes to kill, steal, and to destroy. But apart from an atonement, apart from anything that would redeem mankind and remit his sins, we're all candidates for death through sin. So when the children of Israel on occasion stood against Moses, the glory of the Lord would, would appear And in cases like this where the plague is in effect, people begin to die. But notice what stops it. Notice what stops the plague. And that was the atonement. Now folks, literally, the atonement stopped anybody else from dying. The people are still worthy of death just as you and I would be. But death is stayed because of the atonement. Now in this case, a super fast divine exchange is made. The burning of incense stands for a temporary covering of sin for the children of Israel so that nobody else dies by
by the hand of the angel of death. Now, in this case, there's no blood that's shed. And you could well understand that by the urgency of the moment. If Moses had stopped to kill a sacrificial lamb to offer the blood, there's no telling how many people would have died. If I remember correctly, 33,000 people died before Moses made the atonement through the incense. Or Aaron carried it out at his instruction. 33,000 people. Thank God for the divine exchange. Thank God for the divine exchange. Let me read this to you again in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse, 12, or verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Think about what that means. This new creature is a born-again God-man. This new creature is identified by the substitutionary work of Jesus on the cross. Never before Jesus' resurrection could someone, no matter how much favor of God they had, but no one could have stood righteous in God's sight. As we said earlier, the Bible tells us that Jesus was the firstborn among many brethren. Since Jesus was made to be sin, his sin or his nature became sin, then he has to have life restored unto him in order to be resurrected. Jesus was the first person born again. Jesus still identifies with man through his new birth experience even as he's seated on the right hand of God the Father with greater glory than he had before he came to the earth that redeemed God man is who you and I are too I think one of the greatest tragedies of all of eternity will be when we get to heaven and realize the power and the authority that we could have operated in. Folks, there is absolutely nothing that can withstand this redeemed God-man that you and I are made when we make Jesus the Lord of our lives. The power and authority that we have over sickness and disease is complete and absolute. Can you imagine Jesus getting sick? I can't imagine Jesus getting up any morning with the sniffles. Because his position as being the righteousness of God here on the earth would have stopped any and every sickness and disease not from coming upon him, but it would have stopped anything from taking hold of him. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new species of being. We need to renew our minds to who that new species of being is. Can you imagine the church, the church world as we know it, standing before God and saying, 
You mean we could have done something about sickness? Thank God for those of us who have found the truth. But finding the truth isn't enough. We have to renew our mind to the truth. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new species of being. Old things pass away. Behold, all things are become new. And all things are of God. Now he's talking about spiritual things here, obviously. Because we know that when we get born again, physical things don't change. Now there are physical things that we can change after we find the word of God on the subject and apply it. And all things are of God who has reconciled us unto himself by Jesus Christ. This word reconciled, as we said, means a mutual exchange. It means straight up one thing was traded for something else. We know that Jesus took sin upon himself that we might be made righteous. Jesus was made sin so that we would be made righteous. Jesus bore our sickness that we might walk in divine health. These are the things that become new. We have the opportunity to walk in the same things that Jesus walked in when he was here on the earth. We have through his name the same authority and the same opportunity, the same power over sickness and disease. And as we see that Jesus cast out devils, we have authority over him too. Folks, this is the way God wants it. He doesn't want us to stay down here on the earth and be beaten down and defeated on every hand by his enemy, the devil. He wants us to walk in victory. He wants us to walk in complete truth. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, a new species of being. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things become new. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That ministry is the ministry of divine exchange. The good news is that Jesus paid the price for you. The good news is God's not mad at you. The good news is that God's on your side. The good news is the price has been paid. To wit, verse 19, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Again, he's saying, don't go preach that God's got something against you because of sin. Tell the good news that Jesus paid the price and so God doesn't impute your trespasses or your sins upon yourself. They've been paid for by Jesus. So he talks about the ministry of reconciliation and committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Paul goes on to say, Now then we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled, to God. Folks, reconciliation has already taken place from God's side. But the degree to which we accept it and walk in it and meditate in it, that's up to us. Well, how did God reconcile us unto himself? For he has made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God. The word righteousness means rightness. It means things have been, old things have passed away. Our old nature has been paid for. The divine exchange has been made. 
so that now our sin nature, the changes in us, were exactly opposite from what happened with Jesus. Jesus was made to be sin, overtaken by spiritual death. But our sin nature has been paid for and therefore disappeared. And now we operate in rightness before God himself. Folks, there are so many things that are available to us through that rightness of God. We can literally operate in the earth as Adam did before the fall. Now, there are things about the earth that had changed because of Adam's sin and his rebellion against God. But we have the opportunity to operate as Adam did before the fall and as Jesus did here on the earth. I don't see Jesus wringing his hands about things on the earth when he was here. I don't see Jesus concerned about what's going to happen to him even when they tried to kill him, when the Jews tried to kill him. I don't see Jesus anxious about whether or not his prayers are answered. I don't see Jesus wondering where his next meal is coming from. And the reason for that is because he's operating it in the rightness of God. His spiritual nature is rightness. But he knew all that was going to have to be given up. I personally believe the Garden of Gethsemane was the most difficult part of the redemptive work of Jesus, even more so than the, the cross. By the time Jesus gets to the cross, he's made peace with what he's doing in carrying out the plan of God. But when he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, he is suffering the anguish of being made, uh, being made sin and being separated from God. Thank God for the divine exchange. Let's pray. Father, open our eyes to the truth. We see these words and we attempt to understand them. But Father, we would pray that you would open our eyes to see them more clearly. Cause us to see, Lord, and understand. what being made the righteousness of God really means. Show us how, Father, to operate in rightness. To operate as if there never had been sin because we've been completely removed from sin. Father, we pray what Jesus prayed to you in John 17. Glorify us with the power that Jesus had here on the earth. Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of you. So that the eyes of our understanding, our spiritual understanding... would be revealed and opened that we may know the hope of your calling and the power 
that works in us through Jesus himself. Father, we ask for boldness to speak your word by stretching forth your hand to heal and that signs and wonders might be done in the name of thy holy child, Jesus. Defend us, Father, with your glory and make your will known. Lord, use us to accomplish your will here in the earth. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Well, let's all stand together and say this with me. I am made the righteousness of God in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you, folks. Have a great day.